messages have come across this pulpit from Brother Diaz through the years. This year he concluded 2018 with an unforgettable message. The same ministry. Life-changing. The night before we went, before the planning commission and received our approval, recommendation for approval to the city council, Brother Diaz came and preached to us a message entitled, Contending with God in Prayer, and caused all of us to realize again that prayer is the key that unlocks the door to the glorious miracles of God. And we thank the Lord for Brother Diaz and his ministry and the Diaz family. Would you welcome Brother Diaz as he comes again today to preach the word of the Lord to us? Thank you. Well, praise the Lord and clap your hands, all ye people. Hallelujah. The psalmist said, shout with a voice of triumph. Would you do that here tonight? Hallelujah. We bless you, Lord. We glorify your name. We exalt you, Jesus, for every mountain you've brought us over, for every valley you've seen us through. You are a mighty and exalted God. Amen. It's so good to be in the house of the Lord this morning and to be with Tree of Life. It is always uh, such a blessing and such an honor um, to be here. And um, I don't know about you guys, but especially this season, I am, um, I'm tired of food. I am tired of food. I have a love-hate relationship with food. And um, I have eaten so, I was doing so well. So well. And then uh, my mom came in on Thanksgiving and that uh, messed everything up. I tried it try to get back on track and uh, and then I went to the Dominican Republic first time going back to uh, the country where I was born and uh, I had never preached there and so that just happened uh, last week and it was amazing amazing time incredible But there is no way that I could go on a diet then. And, uh, and so then this Christmas again, we spent it in New York City. And uh, we had a great time. And then I thought, you know, maybe I could start it uh, this week. And then yesterday, um, uh, the devil made me go to Popeye's. <laughs> Um, that Popeye's chicken sandwich, if you've never had it, I'm going to tell you right now, there's, there's not very many things I get excited about in life. And uh, the Holy Ghost is one, and then Popeye's chicken sandwich is two. And then Caleb and Micah are three. <laughs> Amen. But I'm, I'm so glad that uh, we are here. I'm lo looking back over this decade. God has been so good. God has been so good. Even in the worst of times, God has been good to us. And uh, we can't thank him enough. Today I'm going to speak. Uh, kind of a, a nativity type theme. I know it's, it's post-Christmas, but I'm going to do a little post-Christmas Christmas sermon. And um, I feel like um, this is where I'm being led. In, in the book of Luke chapter 2 and verse 7, the book of Luke chapter 2 and verse 7, it is always a joy to be with the Urshan family, the Enuses, the um, and all the families that are here, it's good to see Bishop and his wife and all of you that are here today. The book of Luke chapter 2 and verse 7. And the Bible reads as so in the name of Jesus Christ. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger 
because there was no room for them in the inn. Everybody say no room. Uh, this morning I'd like to speak to you on this subject, no room, no room. Would you put your Bibles down and would you help me go before the Lord and ask the Lord to help us here this morning. Father, we pray that you would help us that I may speak of the goodness of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, O oh Lord. Give me uh, the ability to expose your word in manner that is understandable. And let your people not just hear, but let them appropriate what they hear, put it into action. I pray, O oh God, that you would encourage us this morning and that you would shake us from our sleep and our in the doldrums. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated all over this building. There are uh, many aspects of this nativity scene that we can uh, truly, uh, that are useful for reflection. Frankly, this, this story leaves us no shortage of options of themes that can potentially be dissected and unpacked and applied to our personal lives. I believe that the incarnation, the day that God became flesh and dwelt among us, is still one of the premier doctrines of Christianity. And we should take time to carefully study this beautiful uh, time and place in history. However, tonight, or this morning, I'd like to take uh, one of the peripheral aspects of this story, if you will, to help us see a great and practical lesson. Joseph was about 13 to 16 years old, and Mary was about 12 to 13 years old, according to the customary ages of that time, when their parents more than likely thought it was a good idea for them to be betrothed to each other. Now, that betrothal period was uh, uh, somewhat of an engagement, uh, somewhat, you know, what we call an engagement today, where the couples were already considered married but they weren't allowed for one whole year to have any physical intimacy with each other in order to prove their fidelity and a lifetime commitment to longevity in their relationship. Now, Caesar Augustus gave a decree in those days for a census, and Rome required such registrations for two reasons. One was to determine which, uh, uh, you know, who was eligible, the young people who were eligible for military service. The other was to assess taxes, which was the case in Luke chapter 2. So it was the responsibility of all the Jews to go get registered and accounted for in their respective cities. Well, Joseph and Mary according to prophecy, being from the lineage of David, traveled to the city of David, which was Bethlehem. So down they went uh, from the region of Galilee, which is in the northern part of Palestine, into Judea, the region of Judea, which was the southern region of Palestine. But as Mary gets to Bethlehem, the city of David, her water breaks and an unplanned, impromptu birth unfolds. The, the prophecy of Micah was fulfilled. But you, Bethlehem, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. Well, th th there's a little problem, though. And the problem is that because of the census and all the outside guests that were there to be registered, the extremely small city was now pretty filled up. Mary and Joseph went to the inn to see if they could rent a room, or perhaps that inn was at someone's house. There were different things at that time were called inns. But the inn, when she gets there, was full. There was 
no room. No room at the inn. The inn may have been uh, sort of like a, a bed and breakfast type establishment or just a barn where people housed guests. But in any case, the Bible says there was no room, no room. Figuratively speaking, all throughout history, there were certain people uh, who experienced this same level of inhospitality. Take, for example, uh, Christopher Columbus, who went forth on an expedition, but before he went out, set out on this expedition, he went through uh, countries in Europe uh, looking to see if anyone would host him on his expedition. No one gave him the green light until Spain finally allowed him to go on this expedition. Some say that he was out to prove that the earth was not flat, and uh, while others say that he was looking for gold in India. Well, whatever the case may be, Christopher Columbus went out asking for a host country to, uh, 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 to be the, uh, you know, to finance his uh, expedition, and no one would because there was no room for Christopher Columbus in his day. How about Martin Luther King Jr., a man who talked about uh, civil rights and uh, whose message was about that you can't judge a man by the color of his skin, but by the content of his character. And yet in a, a Memphis, Tennessee balcony of a hotel, he was shot down because in his day and in his age, there was no room for his message, no room for what he had to say. How about Galileo, one whom uh, exposed at one time the theory of uh, the sun being the center of the universe and not the earth? At that time, everyone believed that it was the earth which was the center of the universe and that all planets gravitated around the planet earth. We thought we were the center of all of the attention. And yet Galileo said, no, it, it's the sun. The sun is. And yet in his day and time, the Catholic Church excommunicated him for his heresy. At the time, it was considered heresy. And they sentenced him to a lifetime uh, ban from the church and in prison. He was sentenced to house arrest for the rest of his life. It wasn't until after his death that, uh, you know, we became aware that the sun is the center of gravity and that planets do rotate around this center. And so Galileo, in his day and in his time, there was no room. Galaxies are called after Galileo. That's where we get galaxy from, from Galileo. And yet, in his day and time, there was no room. But the greatest historical personality whose life was characterized by these two words, no room, was the very protagonist of our very text. How ironic that these two words would follow Jesus way beyond the manger. Throughout his life, he seemed to hear this phrase repeatedly, no room, no room. See, during his day in his life, there seemed to be no room for his teachings. There was no room for his preaching, no room for his life, no room for his zeal, no room for his doctrine, no room for his disciples. Many times he had to walk incognito, if you will, among the crowd because the Jews sought to kill him. He was in the world and the world was made through him, John said, and the world did not know him. He came unto his own and his own did not receive him. They knew him not. This is the stone, says Acts chapter 4 and verse 11, which was rejected by your builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. But in his day, he was rejected by the builders. Isaiah 53 also prophesied this when they said, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Several times the crowd picked up stones to stone him.
him to death. Several times he had to escape out of Jerusalem where he was a most wanted man. Even in the story of Lazarus, his friend who whom had just died, when he mentioned to the disciples that he would be returning back to Jerusalem to spend some time with the family, uh, Thomas said, let us also go that we may die with him. Why? Because he was the most wanted men in Jerusalem. They looked to kill him. There just seemed to be no room for Jesus. But it wasn't just him. His disciples would also suffer the same unwelcoming fate as their master. This came as no surprise to Jesus, who himself said, If any man come unto me, let him take up his cross and follow me. That verse cannot properly be understood until we see the role the cross played in the first century as a symbol of capital punishment and how a man had to carry his own cross down what is now called La Via Dolorosa. This was a gruesome practice that often made the subjects wish for death. Jesus wasn't talking about a small sacrifice, but he was talking to his disciples about a cruel and physical and literal death. He was saying, if you come after me, you're going to have to take up your cross down the Via Dolorosa. Knowing, farewell, knowing very well that at the end of that trajectory, at the end of that journey, you will be crucified on the very cross that you are carrying. In essence, Jesus was saying, if you follow me, there will be sacrifices. If you follow me, there will be hurt and pain and separation from loved ones and rebellion against common ideology and being ostracized by the cultural structure. He said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. And remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Amen. They'll persecute you. Why? Because there was no room. And those words rang so very true. The world did hate the disciples. There was no room for the disciples. In the book of Acts chapter 2, the church is born. And by chapter 4, the apostles are arrested and put in jail by Jewish authority. In chapter 5, they're put in jail again. In chapter 6, we meet some of the first century saints by name. And one specifically called Stephen. And in chapter 7, he is stoned to death by a mob after a false trial before the Sanhedrin. By chapter 8, the general persecution breaks out against all believers, spearheaded by a man named Saul. By chapter 12, the first apostle is murdered. In the same 12th chapter, Herod imprisons Peter, holding him until he would find the appropriate time to execute him. Back in chapter 9, we have the conversion of Saul into Paul, and immediately upon his conversion, he faces threats and persecution from the very Jews in Damascus who, where he was converted. Why? Because there was no room for this Jesus. The first persecutors of Christians were the Jews who saw the Christians as heretics. And in chapter 16 of John in verse 2, Jesus told his disciples to expect this from his Jewish country. They will put you out of the synagogues he said yes the time is coming that whosoever kills you will think that he offers God service he was prophesying to them the Jews will hate you the Jews will hate you but it wasn't just the Jews doing the persecution when the gospel began to spread into the Mediterranean world where the Gentiles were in control it isn't very long before the Gentiles pick up the persecution and begin to wield the sword against Christians. A 
allegiance to Jesus as Lord aroused strong suspicion of disloyalty to Caesar. It was considered treason, so they hated Christians. The Romans hated that they preached one God instead of many gods. They hated that they would have secret meetings on the Lord's day, so they hated them. They hated that Christians were having a strong influence among the lower classes of people, the poor people, if you will. If you look at all the apostles' greetings, you will also note that most of the church or a lot of the church were servants and slaves. There were doulos at that time, slaves. And that's why it prompted him to say, not many mighty and not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish to confound the wise and the weak to confound the mighty. They had to have church not on Sunday morning. That was a tradition that was implemented centuries later. But they had church on Sunday night. Well, literally it was Saturday night because they believed that after sunset, the new day began. So to them, they were practicing the first day of the week was that Saturday night. They would have it on Saturday night because the slaves could not attend the church during the morning service. And that's why they had it on Saturday night. The Romans hated them because they lived pure and righteous lives, which were a constant and personal rebuke to the debauchery of the Roman world. Christians were bad for business. Christians delivered people from demons, and that was bad for the demon business. Christians delivered people from idols, and that was bad for the idol-selling business. Christians delivered people from pagan temples, and that was bad for the sacrifices that were sold at the temples. Christians were a threat to their business. Christians, they were an alien people in the Roman world. They did not absorb. They did not acclimate. They did not integrate. They did not blend in. They existed in complete isolation from the system, yet they affected the system. So there was no room. There was no room for those disciples. Church history and tradition teaches us that all 12 of the apostles, with the exception of John, were murdered for Christ's name's sake. James, the son of Zebedee, he was killed by Herod in Acts chapter 12 and verse 2. Simon Peter crucified upside down as implied by Jesus in John 21. Andrew reportedly martyred by crucifixion on an X-shaped cross. Philip, according to the apocryphal book of the fourth century called Philip. He died as he was hung upside down with iron hooks through his ankles as commanded by the proconsul of Hierapolis. Thomas tradition holds that he was sent to India to teach where he was killed by being stabbed with a spear. Bartholomew was crucified. James, the brother of Jesus, was not an apostle, but he was a leader in Jerusalem. And according to Josephus, the historian, a Hellenistic historian, he was stoned by the Pharisees. Matthias was also crucified. Why? Because there was no room. There just was no room. Oh, but Tree of Life Church, we don't have to go 2,000 years ago to see that there was no room for this Jesus and no room for his disciples. There is still no room around our world today. See, according to a Roman Catholic source in all of church history, about 70 million people or Christians have been killed for their faith and two-thirds of them after the start of the 20th century. This article says that hundreds of thousands have been killed since 1990 alone and they're still being killed around our world today. Why? Because there is no room. On February 15, 2000, uh, uh, February 15, 2015, a Five-minute video was published showing the beheading of 21 Coptic Christian uh, captives on a beach along the southern Mediterranean coast. There was a caption in that video called the captives, uh, the people of the cross, but followers of the hostile Egyptian church. In the video, one of the killers in camouflage declared in English, oh people, recently you've seen us on the hills of Al-Sham and on the beach.
weeks plain, chopping off the heads that had been carrying the cross delusion for a long time, filled with spite against Islam and Muslims. And today we are sending a message. Oh, crusaders, safety for you will only be wishes, especially when you're fighting us all together. Therefore, we will fight you all together until the war lays down its burdens. And Jesus, peace be upon him, they believe Jesus to be a prophet, will descend, breaking the cross and killing the swine. The sea you've hidden Sheikh Osama bin Laden's body in, we swear to Allah, we will mix it with your blood. This was not 2,000 years ago. This was four years ago. Do you know why? Because there is still no room. There is still no room around our world today. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, we don't have to go 2,000 years ago to know there's no room for Jesus. We don't have to go 2,000 years ago to know there's no room for his disciples. We don't have to even go around the world to notice there is no room for this Jesus. But even in America today, we are now faced with the greatest persecution against Christianity in the history of the United States of America. America. It is not a physical persecution. It hasn't gotten to that point yet. It is a persecution on our ideals. It is a persecution on our belief system. It is a persecution on our religious right to express our beliefs and to live according to the dictates of our heart. This country was found upon the principles of religious freedom, but now we see how Americans are taking the separation of state and church out of context and making a mockery out of Christianity under the banner that we are an intolerant religion. The irony is that we are treated with the same intolerance that they are accusing us of having. When same-sex proponents can parade around Fifth Avenue with gay pride mockingly dressed as Jesus and his disciples. And then a movie is made on Netflix just recently, uh, listen, uh, and the media pushes uh, and celebrates this, uh, and anybody that opposes it is called homophobic. You know why? Because there is no room for this Jesus, no room for his doctrine. There is no room for his Christians, no room for his people. When prayers and Bibles are kicked out of our school system, Madeline Murray O'Hare was a vocal part of kicking this out of our school system but now and please excuse the phrase but now condoms and rainbow curriculum are being passed out and accepted among our children you know why that is because there is no room for this Jesus there's still no room for this Jesus when late-term abortions are being accepted in today as normal. And can I tell you, when self-labeled Luciferians such as Lady Gaga are being, uh, are being sold, that their music is being sold much to the light of the masses, we have made no room for this Jesus. In this decade, when the transgendered are given awards for bravery and persons who were born male are decorated women of the year, do you know why? Because there's no room for this Jesus. And yet they get Tim Tebow out of the NFL because he prayed before he played. Can I tell you why? There is no room for this Jesus. There's still no room for this Jesus. When in the wake of mass shootings at St. Bernardino in California, the New York Daily News decides to shame politicians for writing prayers and thoughts on with the victims and their families by printing on their front page in large bold letters, God isn't fixing this. God isn't fixing this. We have made no room for Jesus. No room. September 11th, 2001 will forever be etched in our brains as a day that will live in infamy. I remember coming home to New York City, my childhood home, coming on that very day, flying back on that Tuesday morning, 
My flight was canceled, was not allowed. I was actually the very first flight to come out of San Francisco back into New York City. This is a, a kind of a cool fact, not a cool, but a, a kind of a fact, but just a week before, very Tuesday morning, I took the same exact flight, same exact flight number, United, that uh, crashed against the Pentagon. It was the very same flights, very same route, very same flight number that crashed against that Pentagon just seven days earlier. And I was on my way back to New York City on that very uh, uh, Tuesday morning. I'll never forget, though, right after all of this happened, we could still smell the, the burning flesh of individuals around the city. And uh, I, I'll never forget that Wednesday night, uh, we had a little prayer service. We got together in the Bronx there in New York, and we had a little prayer service, and uh, we asked some of the, the men and women that were there to kind of give their testimonies of, uh, of, you know, some of the testimonies that happened. And one of the men stood up, and he said, I've I've got a testimony I want to I want to share. He said, for more than three decades, I've been working at a factory right across from the tw Twin Towers. And while I was there in the in the very last floor, the basement of that building, that's where we worked on a factory and we made some designer clothes out there. And he said, for more than three decades, I have been scorned and laughed at. People have uh, laughed at me for the way that I dress. People have laughed at me for the way my wife dresses. People have laughed at me for the way that I speak and the fact that I don't curse. People laugh at me because I would not go with them to places they wanted me to go with them. People laughed at me because I prayed and read my Bible during my lunch break. People laughed at me everywhere I went. He said, but on September 11th, my boss came in. We didn't know what was going on but my boss came into the factory and he said everyone stopped their machines and he said we stopped them and he said something horrendous is going on on top of us right now and we're at war no one really knew what was going on at the moment but he said we're at war the twin towers have fallen and he said please everybody stop your machines turn everything off we need to fly home we need to run home please as fast as you can get to your family if you could he said pandemonium break out and people began to cry and the people didn't know where to go and what to do but the boss said I'm very scared and I'm really not a religious person he said but I think it is appropriate before we go that we should have a prayer to a God somewhere he said but I don't know how to pray he said is there anybody in this house that knows how to pray He said, church, for over 30 years, they laughed and scorned, and they, and they brutally made fun of me through 30 years of my life here. But he said, on that day, every single person simultaneously pointed over at me, and one of the ladies who was the main, uh, the, the, the main, you know, person behind the scorning, she got up and she said, I've made fun of you for over 30 years. But she said, if there's anybody that I trust, us to get a hold of God it is you would you please pray for us would you please pray for me America don't let towers begin to fall and don't let persecution begin to come before you realize that the only hope for this nation is Jesus Christ the peace of peace don't let it happen before you realize that you need to make room for Jesus you need to make room For there's Jesus. In this story, there was literally no room. The innkeeper just had no room for our Savior. If I were to take a poll here this morning of all who have attended this service, if I were to ask you, what do you think about Jesus? I surmise that perhaps 95% at least, at the very least, of you would 
say, you love Jesus. Or if you don't love Jesus, uh, perhaps you don't have anything really negative to say about Jesus. See, it's not that we don't love Jesus. We love Jesus. It's just that we are, as our text says, full. All of our rooms are occupied. Our rooms are just filled with work and school and church sometimes and ministry. By the time we think about Jesus, there's just no room. We don't have to go 2,000 years ago to know there's no room for Jesus. We don't have to go 2,000 years ago to know there's no room for his disciples. We don't have to go around the world to know there's no room. We don't even have to look around America to notice there's no room. Ladies and gentlemen, may I just say, even in the church... There is still no room for this Jesus. Reminds me of the story of Joseph and Mary when Jesus was just 12 years old and they were up in the temple to, to offer their sacrifice. How they went, the Bible said, a whole day's journey. Not knowing that Jesus was no longer with them. A whole day's journey. It's not that they didn't love their son. They absolutely loved their son. It's just that they were so busy with the journey, so busy with the trajectory, so busy with their social life, so busy catching up with others, so busy they forgot Jesus is no longer with us. And they went up a whole day's journey before someone asked a question, where is Jesus? They left them at the temple. Oh, how apropos is that to our generation today? How many of us leave Jesus every Sunday at Tree of Life Church as we go back to our jobs and we we go back to our daily lives and we go back to our chores. It's not that you don't love them. There's just no room for this Jesus today. And at least the innkeeper wasn't being inhospitable. He just didn't know who this baby was. He did not know that the baby was going to be the savior of the world. Had he known that this was to be the savior of the world, I promise you, he would have made room. Because had it been Herod the Great, there would have been room. Had it been Julius Caesar, there would have been room for him. Had it been Augustus, there would have been room for him. But because he was ignorant of the fact of who this baby was, there just was no room. Jesus was a king, but he was a king of a different kind. He didn't come with the bells and whistles. There was no room for him because there was no beauty in him that we should desire him. He had no money. The son of man didn't even have a place to lay his head. Even his tomb was borrowed. You can't really blame the innkeeper. He didn't 
know who Jesus was. He didn't understand that though he was rich, he made himself poor. He didn't understand that though he was king, he made himself a servant. He didn't understand that though he had all glory, he made himself of no reputation. But we know who Jesus is. Oh, can I tell you, there was an excuse for the innkeeper. He did not know who this Jesus was. But you do. You've read his Bible. You have felt his presence. You've been baptized in his name. You've received his spirit. You have fellowship with his saints. What is our excuse? We still don't make room for Jesus. And also, the reason why this innkeeper did not have room for Jesus is because in order to let Jesus in, he would have had to throw someone out. That is still true for us today. Because if you ever want to let Christ in, there are some things in our ends that need to get kicked out. Because if Christ ever comes in, greed has to go. If Christ comes in, lust has to go. If Christ comes in, hatred has to go. Envy has to go. If Christ comes in, there's some phone numbers that have to go. If Christ comes in, bitterness has to go. If Christ comes in, there's some clothes in my closet that has to go. There's some attitudes that have to go. There's some places I go to that have to go. There's some people I follow on social media that have to go. If Christ comes in, there's some boyfriends that have to go. If Christ really comes in, there's some addictions that I have to go. So there's no room for you, Jesus. You come at a great price. It's like Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ bids you to come, he bids you to come and die. And if Christ really comes in, then I would have to walk the second mile with him that asks me the first one. If Christ really comes in, then I would have to turn the cheek to them who smite me on the one. If Christ comes in, I'll have to pray for my enemies. I'll have to forgive my offenders. If Christ comes in, I'll have to give cheerfully. If Christ really comes in, I'll have to serve and not be served. If Christ really comes in. So there is no room. But the beauty of this story as I bring this to a close. The beauty of this story for us today is that while we tell Jesus there is no room for you, Jesus tells us there is room at the cross for you. While I say I'm, I'm just too busy, work and family and relationships and school traveling and entertainment. I'm, I, I, I'm just too busy. Jesus says, in my father's house are many mansions. If it not be so, I wouldn't have told you. 
But he said, I go and prepare a place for you. While I have no place for him, he has a place for me. I'm too busy to pray. I've got so much on my head. There's social media and friends and texting and, and I've got work and money to be made and I, I've got to get ahead in life. There's no room and yet I hear him say, I stand at the door and I knock. There's no room for you, Jesus. But he says, come unto me, those who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's no room for you, Jesus. But he said, come, let us reason, saith the Lord. If your sin be red as scarlet, they will be white as snow. I close. Musicians come. A little while back, I was uh, getting ready to come out of my home. And, uh, you know, I, I usually find a little time for prayer, whether that be in the evening or at night when my, or uh, in the morning. When my sons go to school or after they go to bed. Find a little time for prayer. I read every morning, read his word every morning. But uh, on this specific day, I had set up a, a meeting with pastor. I was going to go meet with him and, you know, get on with my life and my day and check on some uh, things and, and business and, and plan and, and study and do my thing. I got down and I, I prayed as, as usual. But can I, can I be transparent here this morning? My prayer life, um, it's consistent, but it's lacking. My prayer life had dwindled down to me checking the clock every five minutes just to make sure that I completed my quota for the day, you know, just did I pray enough, you know, because if I didn't pray at least 15 minutes, then, then it's just not enough. My prayer had become an issue of legalism for me, an issue of duty and obligation. I didn't ever want to stand behind here and, and ask people to pray if I wasn't praying. That's why I did it, and when I did, it was full of, of vain babblings. <laughs> oh, Lord, thank you, Jesus, for this day. Oh, Lord, you see everything. Oh, Lord, thank you, because you are such and such. There is no affection in my words. There is no relationship in my words. On the specific day, as, as I was... Uh, looking over at the clock, just making sure I had just read a portion from Psalms or whatever it was, and I closed my Bible, I, 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 my, my phone, and I, I, I knelt before the bed, and I began to pray, and it was some of the same. And uh, uh, Siri, what time is it? I just wanted to get it, get it over with, get on with my day. The Lord brought to my attention when I was just about 14 years old, freshman in high school. And I was so in love with Jesus in a Bronx, New York. I remember back in those days, the Walkman had just come out. Sony Walkman. If you had one of those, you were it. You were it. And then they'd break and you'd tape them up with electrical tape on the side. I 
If you're under 40, you don't understand what. I, I, listen, I listen to my music on my Walkmans on my way to school in the morning. Sometimes on my way back, I had such a burden that I wouldn't even take the bus back to school. I would walk about five miles. I'd walk back home. The reason I'd walk back is because I would listen. And I'd pray for buildings on my way back. Oh, God, save me. Oh, God, use my life. God, use me. I'll never forget some days my mom would open the door as I'd get home, and I was so burdened. I had such a love, such a passion for God and his church. And I would run to my room. My mother would ask, what's going, what's wrong with you? And I would cry, and I couldn't explain. And I would run, and I would lock myself in my room, and I would go under my bed so no one could hear me. And I'd grab a pillow in order to muffle my voice, and I would scream out, Oh, God, use my life for your kingdom. Send me, God, send me. I, I want to do great things for you. I, I, I want this world to be saved. I am under obligation. I owe. And I began to think of where my life was now. The first class flights and the traveling around the world, and pictures on flyers, it's not that I don't love Jesus, I absolutely love him, but as the years have gone on, my end has become full. I want to make more and more money. There's some vanity that needs to come out. There's some things that have taken a hold of me. Oh, I love Jesus. But this walk had become duty and obligation. On that morning, I remember just praying and for the very first time in a long time as I was praying I, I got off the you know memorized script for the very first time there was no one there I just raised my hands and I said I, I love you Jesus I will never forget the tears begin to roll down my face but I had a meeting so as I was crying even as I was crying and I felt the presence I had not felt in such a long time. I, uh, Siri, what, what, what time is it? I don't want to be late. I've got stuff to do. I've got ministry to take care of. I've got people to counsel and business meetings to have. And I got up. I put my, put my best stuff on and and I was leaving out the door, but my heart was broken for God. I stopped at the light and tears began to flow. And I didn't know, but I, I, kept, I kept hearing him beckoning, calling unto me, come back. Come back. Come back. Finally, I, I could not resist that voice. And even as I waited on the light, I called pastor and I said, I'm so sorry, sir, but I'm going to have to cancel today. I, I've, I have another meeting I did not know I had. And I need to get back. And I came back and I wiped out everything off my calendar and I came back home. And I went under the bed just like when I was 14. And I said, oh, God, I've missed you. I'm so sorry that I've paid so much more attention to the ministry of God than the God of the ministry. 
I pray right now in the name of Jesus Christ over Tree of Life Church. Father, in 2020, I pray that men of this house would make room for you and their families. I pray that every distraction that has gotten a hold of us in this generation would be put aside and become secondary. That good things would not become ultimate things. And I pray, oh God, that we would make room for you in our ends. I pray that anything that needs to be kicked out would be kicked out. That you will become first and foremost. I pray that we come back to our first love. I pray that we come back to a place where nothing else matters but you and your word and your church and your mission. I pray that you move my spirit and my heart. Put a fire so deep within us that we would give as much as we can of our resources, of our time, that we would sacrifice, oh God, for your kingdom. That nothing else would be as important as spending time with you and your people and your church. We're going to make room for you. We're going to make room for you. I open this altar here. I, I pray you find a place wherever you are, whether at your seat over at this altar. Just pray with somebody. Could we just turn this for the next several minutes just as a little place of uh, a prayer and introspection? Would you go deep down into the, into the cavity of your heart? And would, you just, would you just reflect on some words? Would, if you need to repent, repent. If, if, if you need to be thankful for where you are and God has brought you in your relationship with him, would you do that as well? I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to condemn anybody. This is, this is not one of those, but I, I pray I've brought conviction over some hearts. To you that love the Lord, if you truly love the Lord, conviction would come upon your heart. And you would say, I'm there, I'm there. My, my relationship is not where it needs to be with Jesus, but I, I needed to get back there. I'm praying right now. If you're a backslider in this house, I want to pray with you right now because the Holy Ghost is dealing with you and your spirit. And some of you are probably not backslidden physically, but you're backslidden in your heart. And I'm praying for you even now. God is convicting you of your sin and God is convicting you of apathy and lethargy and God is convicting you of I don't careness. God is convicting you over some things you have neglected. And I pray right now that God would convict you over to this altar and bring you back, bring you back to him. There is room for you. There's room for you. Make room for this Jesus. Raise your voices all over this building right now. Come on, come on. Raise your voices. Intercede on someone's behalf. Intercede on your own behalf. But I pray in this place that conviction would get a hold. How long has it been since tears flowed? How long has it been since your heart has been moved? How, how long has it been since conviction got a hold of you? How long has it been since you've made room for Jesus? How long has it been since your heart was moved? How, how long has it been? There's no room. God is knocking at your door even now. Come on, make some room. Come on, make some room for this Jesus. Come on, make some room for this Jesus. Make some room for this Jesus. Make some room for this Jesus. Pray with somebody. Pray with somebody if you will. Pray with somebody if you feel led. Pray with somebody here. Come on, the Holy Ghost is moving in this house. This beautiful spirit of the Lord. Let conviction get a hold of you. It's going to be different in 2020. Some family altars need to be rebuilt in 2020. <laughs> My prayer life has to go to another level in 2020. Oh, God, bring conviction to my heart. Oh, God. Oh, God, I've neglected some things. I've, I've lost some things along the way. 
The joy of my salvation is gone. Oh God, it's become duty. It's become obligation. It's become necessity. But Lord, it's not delight. Lord, it's been a while since it's been a joy. It's been a while since it sprung up from the death of my soul. God, I want to serve you with gladness. I want to come back. Come on, come home, come back home. His presence is in this house. Yeah.